pray with me? Uh, Father, we are grateful that you have brought us here today and uh, you're eager to speak to us and we want to be eager and open to listen. Uh, Father, as we listen, um, may we change. Uh, Father, may we see the hope that is set before us in Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the summer, the summer is upon us. We can feel it in the heat. And here at Crossbridge, we're also bringing the heat in the sermon series on the book of Judges. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a very intense book of the Bible. So we're excited about that. The series was launched uh, last Sunday, and it's going to go on through the month of August. Now, uh, the book of Judges has two introductions. Uh, last week, we looked at the first introduction of the book. It's in chapter 1 all the way up to verse 6 of chapter 2. And now from verse 6 uh, through um, the beginning of chapter 3, actually 3-6, there's a second introduction to the book. And what's interesting about this uh, second introduction uh, that we have here of the book of Judges is that this introduction also provides us a summary of the book of Judges. It's an introduction with the summary. In the first chapter, we learn what happened to the people once they got into the promised land and how they failed to obey God's commandments to drive out the Canaanites. And then it ends with God's consequences to them for not driving out the uh, Canaanites out of the promised land. And now in uh, chapter 2, uh, from verse 6 onward, we now have the summary of what happens after that. They enter into these cycles. And so what I'm going to do here today is I, I want to extract some of the main themes that are present in this book summary that we find here in chapter 2 and in the beginning of chapter 3 and apply it to us today. Uh, now, I want you to remember these themes as we go into the following sermons in this series, okay? So uh, there's two main themes, actually three main themes here uh, in this uh, narrative, in this uh, summary and introduction of the book. Uh, there's a, a theme of idolatry. Uh, there is a theme of leadership uh, that this book brings up. And there's a theme of hope. Now, the theme of hope is kind of like underneath the surface, but we'll get there. And so I'm going to divide uh, the sermon into these three points, okay? Number one, the trap of idolatry. Uh, number two, the value of godly leadership. And then number three, God's ultimate king as God's ultimate hope, uh, which is the underlining message of this whole book. Okay, so let's look at each of these three. Number one, the trap of idolatry. Now, uh, we have learned that because they failed to drive out the Canaanites out of the promised land, and by the way, God asked them to do that so that they would not uh, serve God and worship God with the influence of foreign nations and their foreign religions, but that they would live out uh, that promise that God had made to them after delivering them from Egypt, that he would be their God and that they would be his people. And God said to them, hey, by the way, as you drive them out, do not plunder their possessions. Don't keep any of their stuff. And at the same time, don't make them slaves. And so they saw the inconvenience in that because there were some people groups that were stronger than they are, and so they said, yeah, we're not going to go to battle with these people. Instead of trusting God, they said, yeah, it's going to take too much work and we may actually lose. Uh, it's going to, you know, decimate our, our, our population. So 
let's not do that. Uh, let's just keep the peace. Let's just make sure that we can all get along. And to the people groups that were weaker than they were, they said, hey, you know, we kind of, it would be nice to have like an extra labor force. <laughs> so uh, they enslaved them. They did completely the opposite of what the Lord had commanded them. As a consequence, God shows up to them and says to them, now because you have done that, here are the consequences, right? Ready? Number one, these people are going to be a permanent thorn on your side. You'll never be able to get rid of them. They'll always be a pain to you, pain on your behind. And number two, their idols will be a snare to you, will constantly be a snare to you. You will constantly uh, be tempted by their form of worship, and you will fall into their traps as well. And ultimately, what the story tells us is that they end up becoming just like the Canaanites because they end up worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. The Bible says that we become that which we worship, like that which we worship. That's what the Bible says. That's the story of the people here. We see that in the fact that they are trapped in this endless cycle of idolatry, pain, and therefore deliverance. You know, the logo of the series shows us that kind of, that, uh, that cycle, that it starts uh, with uh, Israel rebelling against God, and then God being angry with the people, and then Israel being oppressed. God hands them over to the hands of their oppressors, and then Israel repents, and then God raises up a judge who delivers Israel. They experience a period, a moment of peace, then the judges die, and then it starts all over again. See, I like this uh, way in which God defines their relationship to uh, these false gods, that it would be a trap to them because idolatry is a trap. Uh, apparently, there's this huge problem happening in Nepal where uh, a lot of girls are being uh, sold as sex slaves around the world, especially in Kenya and some countries in Africa. Uh, and I was reading a story this week of how these girls get recruited, and it's the classic story, right? These are girls that uh, live in a very distressed community, and uh, some of them very, very young, some of them already married, but, you know, these recruiters come in with the promise of, hey, uh, there is an opportunity here before you that you can do some work overseas and then support your family back home. And then they put them on a ship or on a plane to Kenya. And next thing they know, they're living in this house with a bunch of different other girls and uh, they're working as sex slaves. And then they go back to the people that recruited them and they say, hey, this is not what I signed up for. He says, I know, I know, I know, it's gonna get better. Just keep doing the work, you know. Uh, the money will get better, things will get better. And this is just temporary momentary. And it's this endless cycle that they fall themselves into because our idols like their story, and this story right here that we're reading as well, are always over-promise and yet always under-deliver. That's what idols do to us. They always over-promise, yet they always under-deliver. And we look at a story like this and we say, well, these, these are the problems of ancient pagan uh, primitive people and we fail to recognize that it's an issue in our own lives as well. You know, we are bombarded with uh, promises from our culture that if we give ourselves to work and achievement, that we will find a joy, significance, and meaning in life. 
And then so many of us, because that's what we buy into, you gotta get into the best schools and get into the best jobs and you're gonna work really, really hard and here are the things that you wanna provide for your family and you wanna buy and you wanna secure for your future, right? And this is the promise that if you get these things, you will find joy, people will uh, recognize you, people will love you, will find love, meaning, significance, value, like, right? That's what we buy ourselves, uh, that, that's the stories that we buy uh, into nowadays. And then all of a sudden, you're halfway through all that effort and all that work, and you're saying, wait, wait a minute. Like, that, that promise that was made to me just seems so, so, so darn far away. And then it says to you, it comes back to you and says, no, 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 but, you know, just keep at it, keep doing it, keep going, right? And then you keep doing it, and all of a sudden, you're exhausted, you're miserable. There's no joy and you feel that you're trapped. You literally feel that you're trapped, that you're enslaved in a system that you cannot break free from. Now, some of you are doing that with work, and you're constantly sacrificing on the altar of the God of achievement, and you've sacrificed your family, you've sacrificed your health, you've sacrificed your relationships, even relationships with coworkers, because you've embarked in this promise that you would find joy, significance, and meaning if you achieved but yet some of, some, some of us are not, not in that journey, but we are in this journey of trying to find love, significance, and, and joy and meaning in life through romance. So many young people believe the lie that if they find that significant other, right, that, uh, that Prince Charming or, or that Beauty Queen, that they'll be able uh, to find meaning in life. And so many of the books that come at us today and the songs are about making that promise to us that if we find that that's, that's what we will experience, and, it, and it's just such a lie. And so many of us have sacrificed so many things in pursuit of these promises, these false promises, these dreams, and it's become too important to us. They become ultimate things, not just good things in our lives, like work is a good thing, and romance is a good thing, and children are good things, but they've become ultimate things in our lives. That's what idolatry is, is turning something good into something ultimate. And our hearts have the propensity to do that. So that's not just a problem of the Israelites in this period in time, but it's a problem of every single one of us here today. You know, Becky Pippard, Christian uh, writer and speaker, in one of her books, she wrote this. She said, whatever controls us really is our God. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. Who is the Lord of your life? Who are you worshiping? What is it that you're worshiping besides God? Whatever you're worshiping or whoever you're worshiping besides God is going to keep you in a cycle of slavery, just like the Israelites here. And you must realize that. Now, the book tells us as well, the story goes on, it says that God is merciful and God is gracious. And when the people realize that they're trapped in this cycle, this vicious, downspiring cycle, and then when they cry out to God, God comes to their rescue. And we learn in this book that the way in which God does that is by providing them leadership. Uh, they're living in the season, uh, the nation of Israel, that uh, there's a void in leadership. Uh, it's, uh, the, it's between the season of uh, the deliverer Moses and uh, also their first kings. So God provides them temporary leaders who comes to their rescue and delivers them from oppression and keeps them out of trouble for a season. 
Uh, we read right there in verses 18 and 19 the following, if you were to look again with me. We didn't read it uh, out loud, but it's there in the Bible app, and uh, it, it should be there on the screens as well. But uh, and we read this, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But, but listen to this, verse 19 now. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. Right? And, and, and so next week we'll, we'll, we'll learn about the, the, the very first judge that God provided to the nation. But up to this point, we still have Joshua. And Joshua is by far the best leader, the best leader in, in this whole book. He's a transitional leader and he's, he's the best leader. And things start to go downhill from Joshua, right? So Joshua is this great leader, and then you have good leaders in Othoniel and Ehud and Deborah. And then you have okay leaders like Gideon. We think Gideon was this amazing leader. He was not. He was an okay leader, and we'll learn why he's an okay leader. Then we have some bad leaders, and then the book ends with a horrible leader. <laughs> You're like, oh my gosh, this keeps getting worse and worse and worse. Because that shows the cycle of idolatry and shows how important great leadership is. So, um, John Maxwell, in one of his books, says this, that everything rises and falls in leadership, and I believe it's true. The Bible confirms that. In Proverbs chapter 29, we read this, that without vision, the people perish. And I want you to see yourself as someone that has the opportunity to lead. Every, every single one of us here are, are leaders of some sort and some kind of, of leaders, uh, you may not have a formal leadership role in your company or uh, in your family or in your neighborhood uh, or in your city, in your community, but you are a leader because you are constantly influencing others, especially if you are a spouse, especially if you are a parent. Oh, I'm not a parent. I'm, I am not, uh, I don't have a spouse. I'm a single person. I live by myself. I only live with my dog. Well, you're leading your dog. Better be leading your dog well. Um, Believe me, there's some neighbors that do not lead their dogs well. But at the very least, you're leading yourself. You have to lead yourself. Okay, so I want you to see yourself as a leader. And in this book, we have the contrast between what a good leader is. Well, actually, we know what bad leaders are, but, but the contrast really is here between good leaders and great leaders. Uh, good leaders uh, lead us to victory while great leaders, I'm going to call the great leaders the godly leaders, they lead us to God. That's the best place that anyone can lead anyone else is to God. So we see this here in the life of Joshua, right? Because Joshua not only leads the people of God into victory, but then leads them to the promised land. But ultimately, what he's doing constantly is he leading, he's leading people's hearts constantly back to God because our hearts have the propensity to wander away from God. And so that's what he's doing. And so we read in verse 7, which was the second verse uh, that we read here today, that, and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Sorry if these glasses are distracting. My wife said at one point they were, they were distracting, but I cannot read anymore unless I, you know, I'm wearing these things. <laughs> Just, 
That's what Joshua is doing. He's constantly leading the people's heart back to God because, you know, they're there in Canaan, and they have the Canaanites, and it's their fault that they're still there, and they're being distracted, and they're comparing themselves to the different people groups. That's what we do, right? We're constantly comparing ourselves. Well, yeah, you know, the reason why that person was able to buy a house uh, in, in, in front of the ocean or by a condo there is because, you know, they've made shortcuts. But maybe I should have as well because, man, I'm, I'm living in Hialeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> We're constantly comparing, running a cost-benefit analysis. Very, 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 very bad. We're, we're, we're many times comparing uh, people's outsides with our inside. That's unfair. It's an unfair comparison. And that's what the people are God are doing. But what Joshua is doing as a leader, he's reminding them of the gospel, of the grace of God. Hey, you were slaves in Egypt, by the way. Remember that. And God delivered us from Egypt, and he was faithful throughout the 40 years journey through the desert. And he gave us the land that he promised, didn't he? Here we are. This is a fulfillment of God's faithfulness and God's promise to us. Because that's what good leaders do. They remind you of the good. They remind you of the grace. They remind you of the gospel. And they ask you to forget the bad. Stop doing the bad. They lead you through repentance. It's remembrance and repentance. Remembrance and repentance. That's what he's doing to the people. When our heart starts to wander away, come back here. No, 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 you're... You're going in the wrong direction. I have people like that in my life, and I hope you have people like that in your life as well, because at the end of the day, all of us lead, but all of us follow as well. And you want to put yourself under people that can remind you constantly of the grace of God, because unless people are reminding you of the grace and the goodness of God, you begin to see the goodness and the grace and other things away from God. If, they're not, if, if you don't have people in your life that remind you how God good is and and, and, and how graceful he has been to you, you begin to say, hey, I'm going to search goodness in something else. And that's our problem with the way in which we live our lives in this culture is because we're seeking goodness elsewhere because we're not reminded enough of the goodness of God, you see. And we don't have people in our lives that keep us accountable, that are calling us to repent, to turn away from things that we're doing and habitual patterns that have been in our lives forever, they're not calling it out. Oh, we just want to exercise a complete tolerance across the board, and I'm not going to get in your business because I don't want you to get in my business either, right? So who are you following? I follow the one. I follow myself. Well, that's a big, huge problem. And, and, and by the way, who and how are you leading? That's a, that's a great question that this book is asking us. Like I said, we all have a responsibility to lead, there was a generation here that we read about that they had the responsibility to lead the following generation. They failed. Look, here, here are my glasses again. <laughs> verse 10, look at this in verse 10. Look, read verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. They died, the generations that came in with Joshua and his elders. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that the Lord had done for Israel. Why did, I, why did they not know the work that God had done for Israel? Because the previous generation failed in that work and leading the following generation and remembering the Lord and calling that generation to repentance. 
How are you leading your spouse? Great leadership, godly leadership, not only leads people to victory, but leads people to God. You shouldn't be meeting with your spouse and your family and saying, what are our goals? Let's just move to a bigger house. Let's save up here because we can get a better vacation over there. That's fine. That's good. I hope you're doing that, that you have family goals and plans and a vision for everything and you know, college for your kids. I don't care. But don't do that at the expense of leading your family to God, your spouse to God. Do not abdicate that responsibility. One of the things that frustrates me the most in men nowadays, they've abdicated that responsibility. And they think that responsibility belongs to the church and the Christian schools. Can I preach? Huh? Oh, don't be uncomfortable now. I don't have the responsibility to lead your spouse to God nor your children. That's your responsibility. If you fail, this will happen to you as it happened to them. That's your responsibility. Do not abdicate. Do not delegate. This is one of those things that in your leadership, you must not delegate. You have to embrace. You have to take full ownership and responsibility. Then don't go. You can't, like if you don't do this, you can't come back, blame the church, blame the schools, and blame the culture. That's your fault. That's what the Bible is talking about here. And that's the, 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 the sin that they had committed. You are to call people to repentance and you are to remind them of the good news of the gospel that they have been delivered and saved and loved. That's what this book is about. The leaders that fail to do that, the people get worse and worse and worse and worse. But here's one thing. What this book also tells us and shows us is that we need more than just great godly leaders. They're not enough. Even if you are, stuff can still happen. It's not enough. You cannot deposit your hopes and trust and your ability to lead or in other, other people's ability to lead you. You cannot idolize any human leader, any political leader. You can't do that. You cannot put on them the responsibility to deliver in a way that only God can. Because eventually what we learn in this book is that even people like Joshua dropped the ball. Joshua dropped the ball. Where? It's right there in verses 21 to 23. Go back. Look. This is God saying to the people, speaking to the people, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. He failed. Like, man, I already took you guys. There's been all, all this work. Ah, ah, you guys take care of that. And if you don't, that's fine. You know, we'll just manage it here, right? Even people like Joshua fail. You can't put your life's hope and trust, even your spiritual growth and development in the life of a single human leader because they will eventually disappoint you. They are, you are setting yourself up for major disappointment. Some of us have been deeply wounded and hurt by people in our lives that were leading us. And the reason why is because as much as it was their fault, it's your fault too, because you put too much hope and trust in somebody that you should have not have put so much trust and hope. Human leaders, those that we make as to ourselves functional saviors, are incomplete. 
They eventually drop the ball and they eventually go away and they die. That's what happened to Joshua here. And when he died and when each of the judges die, what happened? They go back to their cycles. And therefore, the underlining message of this book is a message of hope. And God is saying, stop looking at these people and stop hoping in me. Through every leader that God provides, that is his intent, is that the people will stop looking at other things and start looking at him. Yet, when we read this book, there's no leader that fits that bill, which means that if there's no leader in this book that fits that bill, and God is always promising that to them, and if this is the way in which God is relating to them, to redeem and to restore them, there's got to be one that will come up that will fit the bill. I said that this last point is God's ultimate king, this theme of God's ultimate king in this book, and you're like, man, I've read the whole book and I've never... The only kings that I read about are the foreign, the pagan kings. There's no king of his... Yes, you're right, because this book is pointing to the day when God would seal the deal, and provide them a king. And it starts with a human king, which is supposed to be the picture of his heavenly king. You know, 1,400 years later, if you continue to read the Bible chronologically, another Joshua is born. Say, Pastor, I only know of one Joshua in the Bible. Uh Uh-uh. There's another Joshua that's born 1,400 years later. Who is it? It's Jesus Did you know that Joshua and Jesus is the same name? There's only a distinction here made in our language so that you know which is who, but it's the same name. In fact, Jesus was a popular name in those days. It's Joshua, Yeshua. It's the same consonants. It's the same name. It means God who saves. Isn't that interesting that God is always true to his promise. As he said to his people, I will take you to the promised land. He actually did. He was true to his word. And God says, one day I will fully deliver you because none of these leaders are fully able to deliver you in the way that you need to be delivered. And God provides an ultimate deliverer. He comes in to save us permanently. And he comes in the person of Jesus, the truer and better Joshua. See, the first Joshua was born out of weakness. He was a slave in Egypt. And through his faithfulness, he ascended and he started to climb up the leadership ladder in the people of Israel, and eventually when Moses dies, he replaces Moses, and he's the one that actually leads the people in. And Jesus also comes from weakness. He's not a savior that comes from the palace, but he's a savior that's born in a manger out of very poor parents under a period of oppression, and even under the system of oppression of sin. If you read uh, Galatians chapter 4, it says... Uh, In the right time, God will send a man. He sent a man born of a woman under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that our spirits can cry out, Abba, Father. That's what the gospel says. Like Joshua, he was born into that, and he leads his people into victory at the cost of his own defeat. And on the cross, he does what every single judge and leader in this book fails to do, which is drive away our enemies. He does that. He, on the cross, drives away the power of sin and the power of death and the power of hell. 
at the expense of his own life. And therefore, he is the only one able to help us to break free from every pattern of sin that enslaves us, from the natural destiny that humanity has towards hell. He is the only one that can fully deliver us. He is the ultimate Joshua, the ultimate leader, the ultimate deliverer, and you have to go to him. If you're lost, you've got to go to him. If you're broken, you've got to go to him. If you are trapped and enslaved, you have to go to him. He is the ultimate deliverer. And here's how he delivers us. He delivers us through love. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that we can't seem to change in life? Why is it so hard for us to change? Why is it that we're always falling back into old patterns of sin and, you know, we experience the bitter consequences of that and we go to God and we repent and God says, okay, I forgive you, experience a little bit of joy of forgiveness and then we go straight back into those habitual sins. Why is that? Is that because we don't want it? Yeah, I think we want it. Is that because we don't try hard enough? No, I I think some of us are really trying hard. But here's the problem. We don't love God enough. The reason why we can't seem to change is because there's got to be a greater love for God in our hearts than love for other things that have replaced God's place in our hearts. The problem is, 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 is not our will and it's not our behavior The problem is our hearts. The problem is our affections. And if you want to change, your heart must change. There's got to be a whole lot more of God in your heart than there is right now. Thomas Chalmers, a British Puritan, uh, wrote a work called The uh, Expulsive Power of a New Affection. He talks about that. And I have a quote here for you. It's very powerful. He says, uh, the only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our hearts than to keep in our hearts the love of God. So if that, if that, is, if that is the solution for our freedom and our deliverance, loving God more, put, putting our full life's trust and help in Jesus, not just for eternity, eternal salvation, but for present salvation and deliverance as well. How how do we love God more then? That's the question right now, right? We're going to close with. How can I love God more? And the answer is by dwelling and meditating and pondering and being constantly reminder of how much you have been loved by Jesus Christ on the cross. It's to the degree that you understand his love for you to the degree that his love for you is real. That you see your sins there being punished on Jesus. That you see Jesus there conquering victory for you at his defeat. That Jesus offers you the promised land on the cross by being cast out. It's to the degree that you see that which he was willing to do for you that you begin to understand his love for you too. And the more that you understand that, the more you will love him. The more there will be love in your heart for Jesus. And the freer, the freer you will be.
And that is my prayer for you today, church, is that you will be set free through the love of God in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we are um, grateful for that which Jesus has done on our behalf. Uh, Father, of how much he has loved us. He has delivered us. As the people were delivered from slavery in Egypt, we were delivered from sin and hell. But Father, we acknowledge as well, in a moment now in our prayer, that uh, we have fallen in love with other masters and lords, and we've put ourselves under their subjection. And Father, it doesn't feel good. We are hopeless, and we are restless as a result of that. And my prayer today is that you would come and you would deliver us. The same way that you have delivered us from eternal damnation, that you would deliver us in the present from the frustrations and the pain that our idolatry causes us. Father, we repent and we want to come to Jesus today. Come to him for life. Come to him for freedom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, church.